Well, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a car wreck uh, right outside um, Denver International Airport, uh, the main route driving in, and uh, it blocked access to most of the airport, and it was a Sunday afternoon, and you can imagine the chaos it caused, uh, especially for all of the people who were trying to uh, get to the airport, either to connect with a flight or to pick up a loved one. And uh, so a number of drivers did what you and I would do there. Either their car did it for them or they looked up on their telephone, Google Maps. How can I get to the airport? And, um, and sure enough, Google, Google Maps came up with an alternative route. And the problem was the detour led to a dirt road. And, uh, well, almost 100 cars ended up stuck in a muddy field <laughs> needing to be towed out. So why would you drive down a road that looked sketchy? One of the drivers who got stuck uh, was reporting to the newspaper. She said that crowd psychology played a role. She was driving a Connie Monsies. She was going to pick up her husband. And she said, well, all of the other cars are in front of me, so it must be okay. <laughs> and once uh, the road turned to complete mud, she realized her mistake, and, uh, and they were unable to do a U-turn. Um, Google said that when they determine route guidance, there's all kinds of factors, but they can't factor in things like weather. You know, that was a surprise. So Google didn't take the blame. Um, Connie uh, Monsies, she didn't blame Google either. She said, well, I don't know that it's so much about Google. She said, it's about us. We want so badly for life to be efficient that we try to take shortcuts that aren't necessary. She could have just waited, I guess, and she would have got there. Um, I love this story because it's exactly the sort of thing that I would do. In fact, I've done it before. We, <laughs> we were in Europe last year and ended up in the middle of a field. Fortunately, we did not get stuck. Um, I love this story because it reminds me how easily we can be led astray. And so as we open the Bible this morning, I want us to ask ourselves the question that Psalm 5 asks. Um, what is leading you? And what path is it leading you down? Uh, so that's what I want to answer from the psalm today. Why don't we pray that God will speak to us as we open his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Show us what leads our lives, what leads our hearts, and would you lead us towards yourself? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we are in the middle of our summer sermon series uh, in the Psalms. There's a lot of S's there. Um, it's called Songs of Jesus, so that's what we're calling it. And the idea is that um, songs, we all have songs that form a soundtrack to our life. You know, songs that bring back significant memories or songs that lift us up when we're down um, or songs that inspire us and songs that move us. And for Jesus, those songs were the Psalms, songs that he'd grown up singing, songs that taught him about God, and songs that taught him about himself. These were songs that taught him to pray and sustained him during difficult times. And I'm hoping that these Psalms will teach us to pray as well. Um, so how does Psalm 5 teach us to pray? Um, well read, Johnny. This, is a, this one's a tricky Psalm as the pattern of it goes. Um, I'm hopefully by the end you'll understand a little bit more. So how does Psalm 5 teach us how to pray? Well, the first lesson it teaches us is a really simple one in verse 1 to 3. It teaches us to start the day surrounded by prayer. Let me read verse 1 for you. You can follow on the back of your sheets. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you, and I wait expectantly. King David, who wrote this psalm, he records one of his morning prayers. Um, in fact, he turned it into a song for the director of music, 
to be played on pipes. I don't think that was a pipe organ. I think it was probably like pan pipes or something. Who knows? Uh, And David asked God to consider his lament in verse 1 and then to hear his cry for help in verse 2. David's morning prayer is his ritual, asking God to listen and to hear. Uh, David brings his his requests before God and he lays them down a little bit like... um, Somebody would, a worshiper would lay their sacrifices at the altar, waiting for God to be merciful. And this morning prayer, it's all about coming into the presence of God as you face the day ahead of you. You bring your hopes to God, you bring your fears to God, and you do it before the calm, during the calm before the storm. You give your day to the only one who we know can make a difference, and you ask God to be with you and to wait expectantly to see how he will act. Um, And I think that's a pretty good way to start the morning, don't you? Um, I was reflecting on my morning prayer life. Sometimes it's like this. But this is a really good way to start your day. Um, So that's our first big idea, verse 1 to 3, really easy. Start your day surrounded by prayer. Uh, We have three surroundeds today. The second big idea comes from the middle section of the poem, and this is surrounded by wickedness. I grew up surfing um, back in Australia on the northern beaches of Sydney, a little beach called Newport. Uh, You have a Newport here in California. Um, Our Newport is not as big. Uh, We don't have the wedge either. Nobody gets exploded into the air like they do at the wedge, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, Anyway, when you grow up surfing, you are always aware that you share the water uh, with other surfers, but also with other creatures. (laughs) If you know what I mean, I'm talking about sharks. In Australia, we call them the men in the grey suits. (laughs) the men just slide up sometimes and uh, you know you know that they're there um, but you never really see them not very often anyway Um, every time a school of fish jumps out of the water you're like "Mm, I wonder what's chasing them today (laughs) even when the water's perfectly clear you never see them unless they want to be seen Um, I was surfing one time in the middle of Newport Beach it's pretty open beach and uh, I was paddling for this wave, and all of a sudden, this pod of dolphins turns up. It's 12 or 15 of them. It was great. Um, right there, surfed the same wave that I was paddling for. Um, but it made me realize dolphins have to breathe, and I never saw them coming. Imagine a sharky. <laughs> you would never see. Um, another time, I was at um, the beach, and I was standing there watching a group of surfers. And uh, one of the dads who was with me, he started to shout. He's like, what is that? And all of a sudden, you could see this massive black shadow underneath the surfers. And this thing was probably 12, 14, 16 feet long. It was definitely the biggest I'd seen. And it swam right underneath. And it turned and popped its head up. And this was a pilot whale. Um, That was scary. How does does an animal that big get that close? And all of a sudden, they're there. And uh, I love right at the moment uh, with drone technology. There's all these videos now um, of Southern California, that that Malibu coastline. Um, The drones just show pictures of of surfers paddling that uh, just meters, just yards away from them will be a great white shark. And often two or three of them. There's rarely interactions, we all know that. Whenever you go into the ocean, you know that you're surrounded by all kinds of wildlife, um, whether you know it or not. And David was surrounded by another kind of wildlife, um, a different kind of shark. He was surrounded by wicked people, wicked people intent to do him harm. Listen to how he describes them, starting at verse 4. In verse 4, he says, You are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. 
You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful Lord you detest. And then verse 9, not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O God, let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. David is surrounded by wickedness. You look at the words that he uses, evil, arrogant, wrongdoers, bloodthirsty, deceitful, malicious, liars. Um, David was a king, and that means he was a politician. And uh, sadly, we see these kind of wicked behaviors play out in politics all too often, don't we? Um, But David was also a leader. Um, Some leaders attain their position by doing these kind of behaviors. Uh, But whenever you're a leader, you'll always see these behaviors around them. We'll always find ourselves under attack by the kind of wickedness that David describes here. It's the downside of having power and authority. Um, There's always somebody who wants what you have. But you don't have to be a politician or a leader to recognize the wickedness that surrounds us every day. Um, Wickedness touches everyday people. Like the people earlier this week who are out to celebrate the independence of a nation in Highland Park, Illinois. Like small children who are gathered for school in Uval, Texas last month. Wickedness surrounds us whether we see it or not. And sometimes it surfaces right in front of us and reminds us that the world is not as shiny and perfect as we want it to be. And this reality of good and evil, it creates dissonance. It creates dissonance for those who want to say that the world is only getting better. You know the rhetoric, you know, if we had enough education, enough opportunity, if with enough love, with, with enough goodwill, we could end wars and poverty and we could end human suffering. But the reality is we live in the most technologically advanced society the world has ever seen and, and we have the highest levels of education we've ever had and, and still we can't hold back the darkness. It's not possible. And, and that brings us back to the word that David used in verse 1. Lament. Um, The traditional definition of lament, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. Um, You know, we might lament the death of a friend, for example. But David's lament in this psalm is a little bit different. Um, David laments the evil that surrounds him. Um, He laments the fact that the wicked are still in positions of power and influence. He laments the fact that God is not yet brought to an end all of the evil that taints the goodness of God's good creation. And this is where Psalm 5 teaches us to pray in the midst of evil. It teaches us the biblical idea of lament. Uh, I've put a quote on the back of your page, a really long one. I I love this article, and I might send it to you in the email this week. I thought it was so brilliant. But uh, Pastor Aubrey Sampson, she's from a church in Chicago. She describes lament like this. Um, I think it might be from a book she's written about lament. She says, for those of us who follow Jesus, we live with down payments on the already of God's kingdom on earth. We see glimpses of God's healing power and his love and his victory over evil. But we also live in the not yet of a broken, sinful world. And it's in between the already and the not yet where we wait expectantly for the return of Jesus, who will one day make all things right and whole and complete. Thankfully, we experience glimpses of gospel hope every time that we see bits and pieces of God's reign and presence and power at work. But that final redemption, God's kingdom arriving in full, 
all brokenness redeemed, all evil thwarted, all suffering ended. That is our ultimate hope. And she continues, lament, meaning a crying out of the soul, creates a pathway between the already and the not yet. Lament mines the gap between current hopelessness and the coming hope. Lament anticipates new creation, but, but it also acknowledges the painful reality of now. Lament helps us to hold on to God's goodness while battling evil's evil at the same time. And so she says, lament is actually a godly concept, a spiritual discipline. It's a powerful handhold in our seasons of sorrow. God has given us the biblical language and practice of lament as a way to express our pain and survive our suffering. I love that quote. It's so clever and so helpful. And so David uses his morning prayer to make sense of the reality of evil, but without forgetting God's ultimate destination, God's ultimate plan to bring an end to all of evil. Um, Look at what David says about the destiny of the wicked. Just quickly again from verse 4, he says, You're not a God who's pleased with wickedness. Uh, Evil people are not welcome with you. The arrogant will not be able to stand in your presence. You hate those who do wrong, and so you'll destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful, you detest them. And then verse 10, declare them guilty. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins. See, Psalm 5 reminds us that God will not let evil go unpunished. Evil will surround us forever, like it surrounds David in this psalm. But evil will not surround us forever. It's not ultimately the world that we live in. One day, evil will be banished um, and the evil people will be banished for their many sins. And, um, and I feel like that's where this psalm sort of sneaks up behind us and taps us on the shoulder and it says, hang on, what about you? Where do you stand in this psalm? Um, because this psalm reminds us that, that evil isn't just out there. Um, evil is actually in here. It's inside our own hearts. Perhaps we haven't been bloodthirsty, but, but who of us has never acted with arrogance? Or with deceitful intent or with trickery? Who of us has never sinned? Who among us has never rebelled against God? Um, when you come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he uses, this, um, he uses part of Psalm 5. Uh, he uses verse 9 to show that all of us by nature are unrighteous. Um, all of us by nature rebel against God. None of us deserve to stand before God. Um, listen to what Paul writes in Romans 3.10. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's nobody who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. He says they've become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then this is the quote from the psalm. Their throats are open graves and their tongues practice deceit. If we read Psalm 5 correctly, we are counted among the wicked. We're part of the evil that surrounds the good of this world. We're part of the problem, not part of the solution. And it's a terrifying truth to find out about ourselves. When we read the Bible, we always want to play the part of the hero. But it turns out we're the villains, unless somebody saves us from ourselves. And that brings us to the third big idea, surrounded by favor. Um, The first time I went to Germany, it was 1997. There were no direct flights from uh, Sydney to Germany back then. Um, So you had to stop in Singapore, I believe, if I remember correctly. It's like 22 hours that you travel. And I arrive in Frankfurt and it's 7 in the morning. You know that feeling? You're like already like matchsticks in the eyes. And uh, and I was staying at a youth hostel because I was 22 and young and had no money. And 
Anyway, I had to wait till 4 p.m. for the youth hostel to open, so I'm kind of wandering the, the streets of Frankfurt just trying to stay upright. And, and there's this bakery. Germany's famous for bakeries. This bakery, in the window, they have these little round donuts, and they're covered in sugar, and it's freezing cold outside, and there's sort of steam on the window. I was so excited, and, and so I buy this donut and a coffee. And, um, and the best thing happened when I bit into the donut. In the middle of the donut, was warm strawberry jelly. Had no idea that was coming. It was so great. Sometimes the best part is right in the middle. And uh, that's what we see in Psalm 5. The Psalms are often written where the middle is the best part and the most important part. And right at the middle of this Psalm is a truth that cuts through all of the wickedness that surrounds it. Look at verse 7. But I, by your great love, can come into your house... In reverence, I bow down towards your holy temple. Um, David knew his capacity for evil. Uh, he'd committed adultery with a woman, and then when, she, when he found out that she was pregnant, he had her husband killed so that he wouldn't find out. Um, it was murder. David knew his capacity for evil. Um, but, and this is one of the best buts in the Bible, um, but, verse 7, I, by your great love, can come into your house. Um, David comes into the presence of God, not, not because of his own righteousness, not because of his goodness, not because of his virtue. No, verse 7, he comes into God's presence because of God's great love. And, and this love of God, it's the central theme of the entire Bible. God, in his loving kindness, will invite sinners to return to him. God, God's love will undo the sin that began with Adam and Eve, so that one day many people who, who are former sinners will one day live for all of eternity with God in a new paradise. And that is God's promise. And, and God is faithful to his promise. Um, so the word in the original language for God's love, um, it's hesed, a Hebrew word. And hesed, it means God's covenant faithfulness, his love that's expressed in actions. It's his promise to his people that's unbreakable. It's a promise that comes from deep down in God's heart and character. He, he can't act any other way because that is who he is. Deep down inside, God is love. That's what it says in 1 John 4 verse 8. And John goes on to say, and I think I have this quote on your handout, says this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Jesus died on the cross to demonstrate God's love for us. He died in our place that we might live through him. And that's what David's Psalm 5 prayer anticipates the great love of God that would bring forgiveness to all who put their trust in Jesus. David begins this psalm by laying out his lament before God. I'm surrounded by wickedness. But the psalm finishes with a new perspective. It finishes with gladness and joy and blessing, with David surrounded by the favor of God, protected like a warrior behind a shield. Verse 11 let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. I began the sermon today by asking, what leads you? Um, what is leading you? And is it leading you down the right path in life? Um, in Psalm 5, we see two distinct pathways. And there's the pathway of the wicked that leads to destruction, and there's the pathway of those who approach God because of his great love. 
There are those who rebel against God, and there are those who return to God in reverence. There are those who are banished and those who are blessed. There's two distinct pathways and two distinct outcomes. And so this psalm asks us, which pathway are you going down and and who is leading you down that pathway? Because just like David, we all have the capacity to choose the pathway that ignores God. We're surrounded by people who are going down that same pathway. And like a faulty GPS, the, uh, the wickedness inside us, it can cause us to take the wrong pathways. And, and often we don't realize until we find ourselves in trouble. Or we can listen to a, a route guidance that can be trusted. You know, we can listen to the route guidance that can be trusted. We can listen to God and we can allow God to lead us down the path, the pathway that leads back to him. David finishes, or David says in verse 8, he says, Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Um, It's our pathway, or it's God's pathway, isn't it? The one that leads away, or the one that leads into his righteousness. This week, will you ask God to lead you in his righteousness as you follow Jesus? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this word of warning, this word of, this word of helpfulness, this word that reminds us that even when we're surrounded by evil, uh, that you overcome evil, that you will one day, and that even in ourselves, Lord, by the cross of Christ, by the blood of Christ, you've overcome evil, and you give us a chance to walk with you in righteousness, to be led into your eternal kingdom. Father, help us to follow your pathway, lead us, guide us, and keep us until that day. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.